Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just want to sit at your feet and hear from you today. You are our teacher. You, by your Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. And Lord, we want to hear from you today. And so please have your way with us, Lord. Please guide us and lead us by your Spirit through the simple reading of your word. And we pray that you would give us clarity and that you'd give us wisdom. And we thank you that you even make that available to us. And we thank you for your word. And we pray you bless it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Amos chapter 5. Lord willing, today, Amos 5 and 6. When you're there, say there. All right. All right. Amos, um, as we've talked about the last few weeks, uh, is a not your typical prophet in terms of Old Testament prophets. He's a guy that's um, um, well, he's a farmer. He's a sheep breeder. And he's a, a gatherer of, uh, I think, sycamore figs. It'll say, I think we'll read that next week. And he's from the southern kingdom of Judah. You may recall the nation was divided into the northern kingdom we call Israel, the southern kingdom we call Judah. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, from a town of Tekoa. Everybody, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know what, all, what famous thing happened in, in Tekoa? Nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, it was like, well, I could pick a random small town around here, but you'd be offended by it if, if I said that, right? So any reference to Vivi is completely coincidental. So um, he's from this sort of small town. He's sort of a, you know, probably feels like culturally, maybe feels like a country bumpkin kind of a guy going to Bethel in the northern kingdom of Israel to sort of where all the elite religiosity is, kind of the, the Ivy League of religion. And uh, uh, Ivy, League, I, Ivy League religion is, uh, even today, often problematic. But uh, as he goes there, he's just going there for a brief time, most, most commentators would tell us. Um, but his, his time there was to give a warning of coming judgment. His time there was not to be culturally relevant and get a read on the, on the vibe there in Bethel and try to kind of meet them where they're at and all of this. There's nothing wrong with any of that in and of itself. But in the absence of the word of God, there is something wrong with that. And so what he came to do was to, to, was to uh, proclaim the word of God. And you know, oftentimes, this is just in my mind, so I'm... Oftentimes, we're afraid to stand on the Word of God because we might feel like it's not culturally relevant. Does that make sense? It's like we kind of, we have this 
oftentimes, and, I, and how do I know this? Because honestly, I'm burdened to see churches do this. Oftentimes, we'll try to sort of dumb down the Word of God, if you will, so we'll, quote, meet people where they're at. Well, I'd rather know where God's at. Does that make sense? And so I don't want to be pompous about that. I, and, I, and again, please, I'm, please hear my heart in that. I just, want to, I just want us to share the Word of God. And oh, by the way, he gave us his Word, right? So we have the privilege of reading it. So Amos would have been probably a little bit intimidated, uh, but still feeling this sort of... Uh, compulsion honestly to that he was led by God told to go up to Bethel and and preach and so thankfully he was obedient to do it and he was obedient enough that we have it recorded for us today and so we read this uh, just as overview chapters one and two he talked about the some of the neighboring nations and he pronounced coming judgment on those neighboring nations and and if you're in Israel at the time you would have said yeah bring it on we hate those Gentiles and then he kind of just slowly worked his way back around to the nation of Israel and then he spends the rest of the book talking about judgment on the nation of Israel. And so chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 are a series of sermons. We'll kind of finish those today. Kind of really more instruction, uh, exhortation, warning of judgment. But, but I want us to see grace in that today. Please don't walk away feeling like God is all about judgment. When God warns of judgment, it's because he's just but he always does it through the eyes of grace. You know, God can never stop being God. You know, you think about it. Is there anything God can't do? Can God, um, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it, right? Raise your hand if you heard that one, right? Let's argue about something else, <laughs> right? God can't, there are some things God can't do. God can't lie. God can't, be unloving. God can't not be God, right? That's the, that's the way he's chosen to be. He's chosen to be God. He is always fundamentally a loving God. Is he just? Yes. Does he have to administer justice accordingly? Yes. But does he do it through the eyes of love and grace and mercy? Absolutely. And please catch this. When judgment comes, is there always, always, always opportunity for any individual to have a grace-filled relationship with him despite coming judgment? Absolutely. That is available to anyone and everyone, and please don't ever miss that. Please don't ever miss that, especially as we read some of these prophecies, because some of them are hard. And we need to see the eyes of God through that. So anyway, uh, that's chapters 3 through 6 that we finished today. And then uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll read 7 through 9. There's sort of a series of prophetic visions that uh, Amos is given that he describes. So chapter 1, hear, the word, hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. And so again, I want to say this. He says, hear, the word, hear this word. He's now said this for the third time. Hearing God's word is what matters. That's why we make a big deal out of it. Hearing God's word is what matters. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to hear and know and embrace and live according to 
the Word of God. Not according to my opinion or what I think or what we do here at this church or, or anything else like that. But we need to live according to the Word of God. So he says, hear this word. He said that now for the third time. And notice also he says, hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation. It's like a funeral dirge. You may, know, you may recall that the book of Lamentations was Jeremiah's basically pouring out all of this uh, sort of funeral dirge after the destruction of Jerusalem and talking about how sad it was. And so this is going to be a sad chapter. And so uh, he kind of sort of sets us up for that a little bit. He said, the virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. And so, you know, we've mentioned so many times before uh, that prophecy is, is so often played out literally. You know, when Jesus was born, he was born of a virgin, right? If you were a theologian in 100 B.C., you would have said, that's got to be some kind of like allegorical thing because nobody's born of a virgin, right? And you might have even, if it said he was born in Bethlehem, you might have said, well, anybody knows that the, the Messiah is going to come from Jerusalem, right? And yet all these things are fulfilled very literally. And even, in, even when beforehand, they're, they're in ways that we probably wouldn't understand, Afterwards, we can look back and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And so this is kind of one of those as, as well. So the virgin of Israel, kind of the, 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 he does say the virgin of Israel, so it's kind of a metaphor of Israel that, uh, you know, the implication here is that she was uh, maybe young, maybe the nation was young, maybe the nation should have had more potential, should have had more life ahead of her in a sense. Uh, it says she's fallen and she'll rise no more. The city that goes out by a thousand will have a hundred left. And the... This, that which goes out by a hundred will have ten left in the house of Israel. So about 25 years after the writing of this by Amos, the Assyrians came into the northern, northern kingdom of Israel, and they conquered it. And the Assyrians, when they conquered a nation, they didn't just, you know, wipe it out and there's, you know, flat ground there. No, they, they would conquer a nation. They would deport most, but not all, of its citizens they would leave, you know, they would leave sort of the downtrodden, a few of the downtrodden left, like maybe, I don't know, if a thousand went out, they might leave a hundred. Or if maybe a hundred went out, they might leave ten. And what they would do is then they would bring in uh, folks from these other nations that they conquered. And now what do you got? you got? You got a lack of their national, cultural, and religious identity, right? Which was a big deal in those days. Right? And so now, you know, you got the nation of Israel. We're children of Abraham. We worship God at these false idols in Bethel and in Dan. And, you know, we're, we keep the Sabbath and we circumcise our little boys and we, you know, we do all this cool stuff. And that's kind of who we are as a, as a people. And next thing you know, the Assyrians come. Most of the Jews get, get scattered. A few other people come in. They wind up interbreeding, and next thing you know, we have what are called the Samaritans, right? Fast forward to the New Testament, right, during the time of Jesus. Who were the Samaritans? They were those people that settled up in the northern part of what is now modern-day Israel, right? And they were sort of half-bred Jews. 
and sort of intermingled with all those other people that the Assyrians brought in. And lo and behold, they were hated by the purebred Jews down in the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And so, how'd this play out? Pretty literally, right? The nation came, and that the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel, as, a, as, as, an, as its own entity, never sort of reclaimed itself, says she will rise no more, right? Now later, the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off to Babylon, right? They were there for 70 years, and then they came back. They resettled the land, right? They were later, they kind of hung out there. They were ultimately destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and then the whole thing is, you know, uh, gone. And then in 1948, the, the land comes back, but we never see a distinct, like, northern kingdom of Israel separate from the southern kingdom of Judah. So what do we have? The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. This will be fulfilled in about 25 years after Amos says this. And so uh, it very, very much played out. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. So what's he saying here? Number one, I want to highlight, this is a picture of God's grace. He says, judgment's coming. Therefore, seek me and live. There's always, there's always a path to salvation available to anyone that'll take it. Please hear that. There is always a path to salvation for anyone that'll take it. Today, what is that path? In our biblical context, the path is we're all sinners. Everybody okay with that? Have I lost anybody so far? We're sinners. We're born into sin. We don't have to look too far to realize how selfish we are if we're honest with ourselves. We're sinners. That sin separated us from a holy and perfect God, right? And that sin needed to be dealt with because God is just. But because God is also loving and gracious and merciful, God paid the price by coming in the form of Jesus Christ, a fully human, fully God, to earth to pay the price for my sin and for yours. And he was killed. He was killed brutally on a cross. He rose from the dead to the living to conquer death. And now we say, thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for me. When we say, thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for me, I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. Guess what? We're saved. Do you have to have a big ceremony to do that? Do you have to have a PhD in theology to do that? Do you have to be like, have some kind of uh, superhuman intellect to understand all the complexities of God? No. Do you have to have a certain amount of money? No. What do you have to do? Say, God, please save me. Please forgive me of my sins. Please come into my life and take over. That's it. That's it. There's always a path available. There's always a path available. And I love it. Even in this context, we're going to read a pretty ugly chapter here, honestly. Not ugly because it's scripture, but you know what I'm saying. We're going to read a chapter of judgment. And in that, interwoven in that, 
He says, seek me and live. Now, I want you to notice what he says not to seek because there's a difference. He says, don't seek Bethel. Don't seek Gilgal. Don't seek Beersheba. Right? What are these? These are sort of places where they might have gathered. You know, Bethel clearly was a place where the altar was that, that Jeroboam I had set up. It was a place where they could kind of go and maybe feel good about their religious selves. And if you'll indulge me for a minute, I, I, think an, I think an extension, an application might be for us is church. Is it possible to, to is it possible for there to be a distinction between seek me and live and hey, let's go to church. Right? Church isn't church unless church introduces you to him. Church isn't church unless it introduces you to him personally, intimately, sincerely, authentically. I'm burdened by this, honestly. Too often, I hear people talk about their church. I hope you love this church. Raise your hand if you love this church. That's right. There's ushers for those that don't. Actually, there's not. Actually, we don't have ushers. Just kidding. Just kidding. I hope you love this church. But I hope you love God more than you love this church. And I hope when people ask you about your Christian life, you don't say, I got an awesome church. It's subtle, but it's real. Hey, tell me about Jesus. Oh, man. There's this cute guy at church. Seriously? People do this stuff. Tell me about Jesus. Oh, man. That praise band. You should hear this guy's voice. Right? Tell me about your church. Or tell me about Jesus. I'm sorry. Tell me about Jesus. Oh, you should see my church. You see what I'm saying? What's he say here? Seek me. Capital M, E. One syllable, easy to understand. Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Yeah, there's a church at Bethel. Yeah, there's a church in Gilgal. Yeah, there's a church down in Beersheba. Oh, stuff's going on there. Cool stuff. But he would say, seek me. And there's a big, big difference between seeking me God would say and seeking some peripheral piece of religion it's a big difference Keith Green used to say going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger right You've heard that tape. I'm sorry. You've downloaded that file. Just trying to be culturally relevant. Verse 8. He made Pleiades, if I'm saying that right, and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon 
the fortresses. The fortress. Does your church do that? Did your church, even this church, make the constellations? No. No. He put the stars in their place. He can make the day dark as night. If he wants to have an eclipse, he can do it. The Lord is his name. Please make a distinction between the person of God and the religion of Christianity. The purpose of Christianity as a religion, if you will, is to worship God, to know Jesus, to be led by and filled with the Holy Spirit, to be guided by his word, the word of God, not the word of this church or the word of any other church, but the word of God. And he's the one that created the world, created everything. He is way more awesome than any religious system. Now, as we go through the next few verses, verse 10 through 15, God's going to give us some specific examples of sort of what they were doing and what they should turn from. And I like this. I think of it like this. If I say seek the Lord, that's a relational command, right? Is that fair? Like seek the Lord. You ever notice in relationships, sometimes you, you like, like if I say seek the Lord, sometimes you might feel like, yeah, how do I do that? Well, we might say you do that by prayer. You do that by trying to foster a relationship with him. But I think we would all agree, relationships sometimes um, feel, can feel a little abstract. Does that make sense? Right? Like if, you know, if you're in a, uh, sometimes you want to say, guys are a little, guys can understand this, women, well, you're deeper than we are. But guys might say, just tell me what I need to do. <laughs> right? Right? Like, you know, she might say, you know, you don't do, you, you don't take care of me, you know. And you might say, just tell me what I need to do. <laughs> right? Or tell me what I'm doing wrong. Right? And so I, I like this. God's even kind of bringing it to that level for us. Does that make sense? So if seek me and live is too abstract for us or for the, for the Jewish listeners, he's saying, then he's going to give us some examples. So example number one, verse 10. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. So the city gate was sort of like the courthouse. The city gate was where official business was conducted. You may, and there's been lots of examples. You know, uh, you know Boaz went to the city gate to redeem uh, Ruth. A beautiful story. Uh, lots of, you know, when, when, unfortunately, a less beautiful story. When, when uh, the angels come to Sodom, Lot is there at the city gate, right? And so there's, you know, the, the city gate was kind of where the business was conducted. It was, it was the courthouse. And in this case... If, there was a, if there, the culture had gotten so bad there in Bethel that if somebody would say something that, they, that the, the mainstream people didn't like uh, or was upright, they hated them. Like there was, a, there was no tolerance for anybody speaking the truth. Sometimes we can see a society that has very little tolerance for people speaking the truth. And so... In the nation of Israel that day, they hated the one who rebukes in the gate. 
and they abhorred the one who spoke uprightly. He says, therefore, because you tread down the poor, this next one, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from, from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you, will not, you shall not dwell on them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. And so, he's, you know, what's the next thing that they were doing wrong that they needed to get right? Or another example, I should say, is they were taking advantage of the poor and for their own material gain. And God would say, you know, you can build a big fancy house, but you're not going to enjoy it. You can, build your, you can plant your own vineyard, but you're not going to drink wine from it. And so, you know, God says, that's, your, your motives are corrupt. You're oppressing the poor for your own material gain. He says, verse 12, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. So again, you know, at the gate, justice is not being uh, carried out. The poor are being oppressed, and God doesn't like it. But notice also here he says, For I know your manifold transgressions. What does God know? Everything. Everything. Can we hide from God? Nope. Jonah tried, right? How'd that work out? Not real good. Not real good. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Jonah. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Right? So if you ever feel like, man, I'd like to just hide from God sometime, you're not the first one to do that. But let me just tell you, there's lots of good history that would say, that's not going to work right? goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, right? Adam tries to what? Hide from God in the cool of the day. And God said, I can't find that guy. Did God say that? I play his car keys. I set him around here somewhere, right? Did God say that? No. God doesn't do that. He says, I know I know your manifold transgressions. Now, there's another side to this. I love what David said in Psalm 139, verse 7. He said, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Was there any place God, <clears throat> David could go from God's spirit or flee from God's presence? No. But if you read the context of Psalm 139, David's taken tremendous comfort in that, right? And so if we're children of God, if we seek him and live right? Then along the way, day by day, we have the opportunity to say, Lord, you know everything. And if I got nothing flagrant to hide, then Lord, please, as David concluded in that psalm, please search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me so you can basically clean me up. Lead me in the way everlasting, David said. And so it's okay to cry out to God, Lord, show me where I need to repent. Because God knows everything. He says, I know your manifold transgressions. But if we're trying to hide from God because we think, you know, we got something we'd like to hide from God for, that doesn't work. It didn't work for Adam. It didn't work for Jonah. It won't work for us. On the other hand, knowing that God knows everything, and that God sees us, and that God knows the number of hairs on our head, should be tremendously comforting. Tremendously comforting. Verse 13. 
Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. So the sin of the nation got so bad that, even, that prudent people just stopped talking because they knew they weren't heard. Maybe they were afraid. We don't really know. You know, sometimes it takes wisdom to know when to talk and when to be silent. And that's, that's, that's hard to discern sometimes, and that, that calls for divine wisdom. And so at this point, the prudent, they were just silent. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The remnant of Joseph being the remnant of all the northern kingdom of Israel. So, to the nation that doesn't repent, God will bring judgment. And so that's why there's a, this chapter starts out with a funeral dirge, right? With a lamentation. But uh, to the nation that repents, there's always opportunity. Verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this. There shall be wailing in, the, in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful lamenters to wailing in all vineyards. There shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Again, this happened 25 years later when... Um, when the Assyrians came and they didn't repent and so this is what happened. Not just a few people, but in all the highways, alas, alas, skillful lamenters called to wailing. Verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. But what good is the day of the Lord to you? It'll be darkness and not light. It'll be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned, on his wall, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So again, you know, Amos is a farmer, right? He's a sheep breeder. So he understands, uh, you know, lions and bears and stuff like snakes, stuff like that. So he uses these as kind of examples. But, you know, at that time, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, you think about this. In, in New, Ta- New Testament context, the day of the Lord, we would understand that to be a reference to the great tribulation. But in those days, prior to the coming of Jesus, in their mind, the day of the Lord is when God is going to restore Israel, uh, going to kind of take care of all their enemies and all of that. And these guys, they had this feeling like <clears throat> that God's going to judge them, or God's going to rescue them from the threat of the Gentiles. In this case, God is going to judge them by the Gentiles, the Assyrians. And catch this now. Again, back to application to us. These guys thought they were secure because they were Jewish. They were members of the Jewish religion. They were sort of members of the Jewish church, if you will. They thought they were secure. And again... We have to be careful that we know God. And I don't want to hammer this too much, but we've got to be careful that we know God and not just the Christian system or the Christian thing or Christian music or, or whatever it is. He said that's like, that's like you know, to the person that puts their security in the religious system without a relationship with God, 
That's like running away from a lion. Like you're in the woods and there's a lion here and you're out running him and you feel like you're starting to feel pretty good about yourself because you're out running the lion, right? And you turn and look forward and there's a bear standing right in front of you, right? Doesn't matter that you outran the lion, right? The bear's got you. Or you go in and you, you know, okay, you escape them both and you're feeling really good about yourself. You get inside your house, slam the door behind you. <sighs> it's awesome. Lean your hand up against the wall. You get bit by a viper. And now you're dead, right? You've got to love these biblical vignettes, right? That's what it's like to put our security in anything other than God. We might think we're good because we outran the lion, but we're not. We might think we're good because we outran the, the, the bear we got inside our house, but we're not. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, you know, there's going to be people in that day that are surprised. Let me not butcher it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Notice those are even supernatural events, at least in their eyes. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I want to be careful here. That should be concerning to us only if we don't know Jesus. That should be concerning to us only if we think we're all good because we go to church. That should be concerning to us only if we don't have a relationship with Jesus. Because what does he say? Does he talk about, hey, uh, you didn't do enough cool stuff. I know you cast out demons and prophesied and did lots of wonders, but you didn't do quite enough cool stuff. Is that what he says? No, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't know you personally. I know you went to church and did what you thought was cool stuff. But you didn't know me. It's like outrunning a lion and getting bitten by a bear. It's like escaping into the house and getting bitten by a snake. He would instead say, seek me and live. He said, I hate, I despise your feast days. He's getting pretty strong now. He said, I despise your feast days and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, to be fair, this is to that group of people in that culture, in that time. They were flagrantly disobeying everything they knew to be right, right? And they were missing God. They were oppressing the poor, and they were missing God. They were doing all kinds of evil, and they thought they were still okay, but they missed God.
And God says, I don't want to hear your, I don't want to be a part of your celebrations, your religious holidays, your religious feasts, because you don't know me. He says, verse 25, did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikath, your king, and Chian, your idols. Those are, those are pagan idols. The star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So there's a reference here. As far as I know, we don't see it really referred to anywhere else. But there's a reference here that when they left Egypt... They carried some of these Egyptian idols with them out into the desert, right? And God saw it, right? Because God knows everything. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, if you're doing the, through the Bible in a year, we've just read about the Exodus, right? And I always, and I noticed this this time around. And let me encourage us. There's always something new to notice each time around, right? But I noticed this time around, what did Moses always say to Pharaoh? Hey, let my people go so that we may what? So that they may worship me out in the wilderness, right? Let my people go so they may worship me out in the wilderness. Well, you fast forward, they get out, right? After the 10 plagues, they go through the Red Sea. Okay, so they sing a song like the horse and his rider, they thrown into the sea. That was a worship song, right? Had a catchy tune to it, right? But after that, how much worship do you see, do you read about in, the, in, the, in those desert years? Right? I mean, if you call, wah, wah, I mean, it's a bad tune, right? Oh, no water, right? If that's a worship song, I don't know it. Oh, no bread. You know, back in Egypt, we had meat and we had this and we had this and we had this. And now, did you bring us out here to kill us? Is that worship? I don't think so. Right? Do we get that way sometimes? See, when you're me, you sing out a tune. Wah, wah. Can sound confusing. So, God is saying, this has been going on for a long time. When you were in the desert, you brought Egyptian idols with you. Did I not see that? I see that stuff. So it goes on. Chapter 6. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Now he's talking about Zion is, a, is a, another name for Jerusalem. Now we're talking about the southern kingdom, just briefly. And Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Samaria is up in the northern kingdom. So he's talking about, you know, really both. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and see. And from there, go to Hamath at the great. Go down to, the Philist uh, go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? And so these areas, uh, Kalna, uh, Hamath, uh, those were areas, um, cities in Syria. Gath was one of the Philistine cities. These, is, these are areas that have been previously captured by the Assyrians. And God is saying, hey, are you guys any better than they are? Right? Now, interestingly, this may be more information than you want to know. You may recall a few years later, well, mm, I think about 140 years later. No, not that many years later. Anyway, a few decades later, we'll say. Give me some slack. 
A few decades later, the Assyrians, the same ones that conquered the northern kingdom, are coming into the southern kingdom. And they're coming up to Jerusalem, right? And they're surrounding the city of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is the king at the time, right? You remember the story. And these, these Assyrian leaders, they come in and they say, hey, is your God going to be able to protect you from the, the awesome king of Assyria? Did this king or that king or that king or that king or that king or this nation or that nation or that nation or this people, that people, were, they able, were, their, were their gods able to pr- protect them? No. But Hezekiah stayed strong because he was focused on the Lord. Hezekiah knew God and lived, right? The same argument that the Assyrians used to Hezekiah, God is using to the northern kingdom because they're not trusting in him. They're trusting in their own strength. And so the point is, if we trust in our own strength, we're no better than anybody else. If we trust in the Lord, we're way better than everybody else. And that's the distinction he makes. He said, hey, go see, you know, uh, those areas there in Syria or in Philistine. Are you guys any stronger than they are? No. Woe to you who put far off the day of, e- of doom, who caused the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock. Again, pictures of, of, um, of luxury. And calves from the midst of the stall who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they go now to cap. They go now captive. They shall now. I'm sorry. They shall now go captive, as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. And so, what's he say here? He's pronouncing a, an, another woe. Woe to those who thrive on luxury at the expense of others. Because why? They're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. You know, Joseph here again uh, is a reference like it was in uh, chapter 5, verse 15. It's a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes uh, Joseph's son Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. So sometimes Ephraim is a reference to the northern kingdom. But I think maybe it's no coincidence here. Uh, some folks say this, that, that the... Um, the affliction of Joseph is also a reference to of the 12 brothers of Jacob or sons of Jacob Joseph was the one that got afflicted sent down you know sold off to slavery and he was sort of the picture of the oppressed brother if you will and so you know woe to you guys who lie on beds of ivory that doesn't sound very comfortable to me anyway but apparently it was cool back in the day and stretch out on your couches, you eat lambs and calves and drink your wine and all that, but you're not grieved for the affliction of the oppressed. You're going to go captive, he says. Verse 8, the Lord, has, the Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces, therefore I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And so God does not like pride. God does not like human self-sufficiency. His, he wants his children to seek him and live. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead with, with one who will, burn the body, uh, who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, are there any more with you? Then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. So just a 
honestly a picture of destruction and chaos and just a terrible picture. Verse 11, for behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. So we referenced this last week. You know, if you've got multiple houses, that's no refuge in the time of judgment, right? What's the only refuge in the time of judgment? Turn, seek God and live. Multiple houses, lots of financial security, lots of stuff, lots of luxury. Uh, God said he'll break the great house and he's going to break the little house. Do horses run on rocks? Again, he's a farmer, right? If you had a horse, would you run on rocks? Probably not. Does one plow there on the rocks with the oxen? No. Yet you have turned justice into gall and fruit, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And so, you know, it's a rhetorical question, right? God doesn't reward the pride of the people then or now, any more than horses should run on rocks. You who rejoice over Lodabar, who say we have not taken Carname for ourselves, have we not taken Carname for ourselves by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord of God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Areba. So these areas, Lodabar and Carname, were apparently places of prior victory. And again, they were proud about that. And again, that's no guarantee of a future blessing. How do we escape the judgment of God? Anybody? Seek me and live. How else do we escape the judgment of God? No way else. What if, what if people tried over the years? Military strength, right? Prior nations that we've captured? Being a part of a cool fellowship, uh, a religion that sort of looks like the worship of God, but sort of not. Taking pride in their own religious activity, but yet not knowing God. In the New Testament, notice this please. James 4 verse 6 says this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5, you know what that says? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's always struck me, interestingly, that God references that twice in the New Testament letters. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. I remember driving down the road one time, probably full of spiritual pride, and see one of these church marquees, Right? <clears throat> or church sign. And it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. And I thought, that ain't right. That's in James. <laughs> or the other way around. No, I think it was James, and I remembered, I remembered the 1 Peter 5. I remember, that's not, they said that's in James? That's not right. It's in 1 Peter, right? It's twice. And whenever God repeats something, it seems to be that he wants it emphasized. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Can I tell you this? I hope you don't put your security in this church. I really do. Do I love this church? I absolutely love this church. Am I thankful for this church? Absolutely. Am I thankful for you guys? Absolutely. Has, do I believe God has brought this group of people together to be called a church that serves Him? Absolutely. But we are completely, completely failing if we don't first and foremost point one another to Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God except through Him. Right? And so, you know, there's been lots of, there have been lots of empires over the years that have come and gone, including the northern kingdom of Israel. Right? And God brought warning to that northern kingdom of Israel. And sure enough, destruction came about 25 years later. But I want you to notice, even in that dire warning, God says, seek me and live. You know, it's never more complicated than that. Seek me and live. James tells us that if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. Seek me and live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your grace is so abundant that even when even when you warn of consequences to come, you always leave opportunity for a remnant. You always leave opportunity for your grace. And Lord, we want to be people who walk in that grace. We want to be people who collectively are part of the remnant. And Lord, we, we want to see people come to you. And so Lord, you, you are the one who orchestrates everything. You set the stars in their place. And so Lord, we want to submit to you, we want to surrender to you, and we want to be led by you. Lord, help us to be people who have a burden to point others to you so that we can seek you and live. Thank you, Lord, so much that your grace is abundant to us. Please have your way now. Guide us and lead us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.